Hi, my name is Pablo Galindo. And my name is Lucas Langa. And this is the Cordal PY podcast, a new podcast where we discuss the internals of CPython or adventures in making a new version of your favorite programming language. Today, we will be talking about PEP703, which is basically this PEP that removes the global interpreted lock. If you don't know what it is, don't worry, we will, <laughs> we will go very deep into the topic. Um, and we will talk about uh, everything that you need to know about the most exciting Python chain in a long time. Uh, even if you pretend to use the thing or you want to maintain the thing, which is uh, two different things, uh, as uh, many people will soon find out. Right. Uh, yeah, let's maybe start with the current state of things. So how does Python work today and why is this a problem? Um, the key point here is basically that um, CPython uses a way to manage memory uh, called reference counting. Uh, the whole schema is more complicated because then there is like cycle GC and whatnot. But the basic idea here is that um, uh, reference counting is the main schema to manage memory. And the idea is that every object knows how many people uh, are using it. So if I have a list and then I you know, have two variables pointing to my list, then the reference count of the list is two. And the whole thing is that when, when reference count reaches zero, we know that nobody is using the object and CPython can deallocate the object, right? Right. And then, you know, you can, if you are one of these smart ass people, uh, you can say, well, you know, like what happens if I have like one object that points to another object and then that another object points to the first one uh, and nobody points to any of these two? And then you have what is called a reference cycle, and then we have our, you know, this whole different thing called the cycle GC yeah. that is in charge of, you know, detecting these reference cycles mm-hmm. and removing them, which you know is is a bit more complicated, and we are not going to go into detail, right. right? Okay, so this memory management scheme is very useful for uh, the users of Python, since you don't have to actually think about memory management yourself. And in fact, even though it is dynamic, it is very predictable. Like when you um, leave a block where an object was created and it's not actually given anywhere else, um, Python can uh, rather reliably know that okay, now this is the time to decrease the reference, and if the reference reaches zero, we can free memory. So this is tremendously useful. And also not extremely kind of complicated to get right thanks to one global interpreter lock that we have that is used for all sorts of operations to make sure the internals of the interpreter stay correct when you are dealing with multiple threads of execution. So for example, all this reference count in graphing and the graphing is something that we need to make sure is atomic and is not going to be broken by another thread trying to do the same thing at the very exact same time. So, you know, kind of with the reference counting, for example, incrementing only once instead of twice. But the global interpreter lock is used for many other things. Uh, most importantly, to protect internal memory representations of Py objects. So any kind of object that you have in Python um, is, is going to have its header with a bunch of internal um, information there. And internal data structures like dictionaries, like lists and whatnot, when you're adding or removing an element from them, any sort of mutation, um, we will use the global interpreter lock to ensure that it is still atomically represented um, with some valid state. So you're not going to have a situation where an object is in the process of being added to a list, but we are not 
actually quite done with that yet and you're reading an invalid list. So yeah, we actually have the kill as this one a central way to synchronize those operations. And um, that makes stuff easy for us to reason about, but it actually limits what you can do when you want to run threads. But Python does have the threading module, right? So why even bother with the threading module if uh, we have this gobbledygook lock that causes things to never run in parallel? Well, never is a strong word. In fact, we have uh, plenty of opportunities to free the global interpreter log uh, from the current thread when we know that the current action executed in that thread is not going to touch Python. So if you're doing some computation straight on bytes, I don't know, converting an mp3 or doing some operations on uh, like in-memory arrays that don't actually have anything to do with by objects, you can for a while free the global interpreter lock. If you're waiting for external I.O. for a network, you can do the same thing. So threads are, to some extent, usable in Python even today, but um, the most popular thing that they would be used for, uh, which is user code parallelism, is not at this point enabled. It's not possible uh, with the global interpreter lock as it is now. Right. And there is a lot of hunger for the idea of being able to actually run, uh, you know, parallel computations in Python. Um, even if for a long time we have said, well, you know, you you have this model when, you know, things are maybe not parallel, but you know, most of the cases are kind of fine, especially for I/O. So you can still run your HTTP server kind of okay with Python because you know most of the threads will be waiting for uh, data on sockets. Right. There is still cases when this is not enough, and in the modern world. You know, CPUs are not like faster and faster and faster in a single core. We don't have like CPUs of 25 gigahertz, right? Yeah. Um, uh, what we have is a lot of cores. Like, and even these days, we have a stupid amount of core in some of these CPUs. I think one of these racing has now 90 something cores, which is bananas. Yes, the new Threadrippers, right? Right. Yeah, it's only two thousand dollars of CPU. <laughs> so now, now they are competing to see if the GPUs are more expensive than the CPUs. We'll see who wins. Right. Even in your phone, you're gonna have like ten cores, right? So like this right. kind of world with multiple cores is not something that is uh, just relegated to high-end computing. Like everybody has a multi-core computer in their pocket now. Exactly. So, for instance, there is there is a lot of cases when still this is uh, a huge difference. For instance, if you happen to run, let's say, numeric code uh, using Python objects, even if you are using NumPy, uh, yes, a lot of the operations happen in C, but like still there is a lot of the stuff that still happens in Python. Uh, for instance, every time, and this is something that a lot of people don't realize, every time you convert some of the C uh, ob uh, objects to Python objects, you need the GIL, and therefore, if you have a heavy you know, array, and then you need to compute, uh, transform this into a lot of Python objects, then you need the guild for that. And if you have multiple threads uh, doing the same thing, then only uh, one thread at a time can do the conversion, um, apart from the operations themselves. So that's one of the cases. The other case is basically the idea of uh, sharing objects between these threads without having to like serialize and deserialize these objects. For instance, recently in Python 3.12, we have um, multiple interpreters. This is a way to uh, circumvent the guild limitations. And the idea is that you can have like several copies of Python in the same process. But the problem is that you can still have like one list and send it to another copy of Python. You need to uh, basically copy it. Uh, so the, every copy of Python has its own version of the list. There is no way to have, let, let's say, a big 
uh, cache that is shared between all these copies of Python and use uh, for lookups. You need a whole copy, so you still need to duplicate memory and pay for the serialization and the serialization. At least for now, there is um, there is uh, things that we are trying to do to avoid this. But like you know, if we didn't have a guild, you could literally share this thing in a safe way. Uh, without having to worry about it. Yeah, exactly right. Since um, like we had, uh, you know, ways to uh, overcome the limitation of the global interpreter log in the past. Multiprocessing was one, and you could use it kind of in an elegant way from AsyncIO with uh, the process pool executor, and so on and so on. So as long as the amount of data that you needed to share between your um, kind of orchestrator process and the worker processes wasn't huge, this usually wasn't a big deal. But as soon as the amount of data shared between the workers and the orchestrator were large, you would see that in fact like all this multi-processing business is just uh, you know kind of circumvented, is limited by the time spent serializing your uh, memory objects into something that another process can now access and read, and then doing the same uh, the other way around when uh, you made the computation you wanted to do. So um, being able to share data without serialization is a very important use case for this. Right. So this is, uh, I hope we convinced you that this is actually quite important and a lot of people want this from the you know the numeric world, from the server world, so it, this serves everyone, right? Uh, so uh, why we don't have it? Because maybe maybe it's interesting to see like the story of of uh, this change in the sense that uh, a lot of people actually have tried to fight this battle and unfortunately we have not succeeded. So so maybe it's good to to uh, quickly go through all the all the current attempts to remove the guild and and briefly discuss why they fail. Right. So in fact we could have had it. Uh, a long time back, um, even in 1999, at the time of Python 1.6, uh, Greg Stein did actually remove the guild successfully. The only problem with that was replacing one uh, very coarse lock with many small locks for making the reference counting operations still valid uh, made the performance of the interpreter way worse. And this is why this patch was um, eventually abandoned since the changes required to maybe overcome this limitation were increasingly of large scope and the Python interpreter at the time had this internal feature for maintainers that was supposed to be very clear uh, in how it's implemented. It was supposed to be quite hackable and readable. We have to understand what we're dealing with, otherwise how can we maintain this uh, interpreter? Jython, an implementation of Python in the JVM, um, famously does not have uh, the global interpreter log, so it is definitely a possibility, but what they also don't really have to deal with is all the extensions to your Python um, modules and you know libraries written in C. So because because they don't really deal with the C API, it is easier for them to also drop the global interpreter lock and just have finer grained locking that is using some of those same facilities that are already present in the JVM. In the meantime, in 2015, Larry Hastings did also successfully remove the guild from Python 3.5. And again, he discovered that the 
result is very slow. Spending a lot of time like fine-tuning reference counting so that it could be deferred and so on and so on, he was able to meet the performance of a single core with his version, but he needed to use like seven cores to match the single core performance of the regular Python interpreter, which seven to one is a large ask for anybody. So at some point uh, he attempted, you know, kind of actually making a new garbage collector for Python for Galectomy 2.0, but very quickly it turned out that like this is an area of research that is so large that he couldn't just do it by himself. So, you know, his work is very important. It identified the reference counting as like a big scaling bottleneck. It showed that actually removing the gill and replacing it with, uh, you know, finer gained locks is possible. Right. The performance is the make or break of that change. And this is this is an interesting realization, right? Like uh, a lot of people say, oh, removing the gill is extremely hard, and that's why we have not done it yet. But the actual the actual reality is that no, actually removing the gill is very easy. It's you just add tiny logs and all the Python objects, and you're done. And the problem is making it fast enough, right? Like that's where the actual price is. Like you know, you, you, you cannot just add logs to everything because even in the single threaded case, even if logs these days are extremely fast and efficient. And you know, like I remember Larry mentioning after conference, like tons of people approaching him and saying, "Hey, hey, look, there is this crazy implementation of locks that is super fast and blah blah blah." Like that, that doesn't matter; it's still slow, right? Like because if you are doing it hundreds and millions of times, because reference counts happens a lot, um, then then it's, it's, you're you're losing the battle. So you need some heavy heavy weaponry here to to make sure that you know you don't make Python twice as slow or something like that. Right? Yeah. So I I would like to qualify like maybe like for Pablo Galindo like removing uh, the gill is easy. Like for me in particular, it wouldn't be. So just that operation alone, even if you don't think about performance, is still a feat of engineering. Since if you're removing one lock and replace it with two, well, conceptually, it's easy. well, you're introducing a new class of problems that did not exist before, and that's the locking, which is the situation where you're holding a lock, waiting for some other resource. And that other resource actually holds another lock and waits for your first resource. And the two uh, combined together will wait forever because, you know, like the ordering of operations is simply invalid. So making sure that deadlocks don't happen is, uh, is, is, is not a maybe a trivial task, but it's definitely tenable. We can solve this. Like this is something that you can do. Uh, but the performance, on top of the correctness here, like makes it a real challenge, right? And this leads us, I think, to uh, the 2021 approach, which is the the first version of the current PEP, which is Sam Gross, uh, who works at Meta, and he basically was working for a long time on a version of Python 3.9 that basically um, uses a bunch of like new approaches to this problem. But ideally, basically, the, the whole thing is that he removed the guild by adding these locks and trying and then he fought really hard to bring back performance by implementing a bunch of optimizations of top. So the idea is that you know you, you do the kind of a straightforward way um, with some new methods to you know make reference counting as fast as possible that we are going to discuss here. Yeah. Um, but then the rest of the work that, that is here is trying to bring back that performance, like you know, optimizing different ways and trying to uh, you know, use these locks. Uh, you know, the the least amount of times possible. Yes, exactly. Um, that was a proof of concept. He sent this email to our mailing list. Uh, initially, people were a bit skeptical because you know, like every time someone claims to remove the gill and and have like the 
the same performance you take it that with a grain of salt salt but uh the you know, Samson actually succeeded he did the thing it's just that the patch was ginormous, so it was very difficult to understand. Even if he actually, uh, you know, um, sent also, like, uh, if I recall, a, a Google document describing the technical aspects of his work. So it was not just a, you know, pa- uh, passing by with his car, you know, dropping a six uh, six thousand line patch or eleven thousand, if I recall, and saying goodbye. I sold the thing. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, he actually, like, you know, tried to explain how how he did it and yeah, all that. Yeah, like um, he he spent like some considerable work. To make sure that this is something that you can incrementally understand, so the uh, Nogel uh, three nine branch was, I think, seventy four comets, and they were structured in a way where everything just led to like comet seventy four that actually disabled the Golden Ribble Lock. But there were changes that came before that were more like you know, kind of preparations for this last one step. Um, and you know, kind of over the course of every comet, you could still run the Python test suite and it would still be passing. Uh, so, you know, kind of a lot of work there was put like so that it, the change did look incremental and you could actually kind of understand like at least, uh, you know, what one particular change was doing. But some of those single comets were still huge. Like when you're replacing, you know, kind of reference counting with uh, this not, well, non-eager reference uh, counting version, like obviously this is going to be huge. Um, you know, and, and some of the changes that he made at the time, like were not even something that we're going to be, you know, in fact, probably having like with Bef, uh, 704, some of the uh, some of the changes there were, you know, kind of needed uh, to make performance look better. But we decided ever since that this is really something, well, like say orthogonal or something that doesn't really make, uh, well, isn't really related to this one change. Uh, but yeah, he came to us, like, you know, there were some uh, interests. So we even ran like a meeting with him uh, in late 2021. And it had to be online because, you know, COVID and everything. Uh, I wrote like some summary of like that meeting, uh, you know, on the blog. You know, we talked about uh, whether this is feasible to implement or not. Uh, but, you know, kind of there were tons of questions on, you know, whether this is going to be good or bad for the community at large, whether this is going to break the C API, whether this is going to introduce subtle bugs that are impossible to debug now, and so on and so on. So deciding on whether we're adopting it or not was pretty much like impossible. Like we, right. nobody wanted to really be that person that says no, but also nobody was sure enough to say yes. So only in 2023, we arrived at the moment where this was formalized into a PEP to actually get this answer from the steering council. Like, are we doing this or not? Right. And in 2023, you know, Sam created this PEP, which is the one that we are going to talk about here in detail. And he actually rebased, uh, you know, the whole implementation on top of 3.12. So we can actually check it on top of the latest improvements that we did in Python 3.11. And very recently, this past week, uh, as, as the time we are recording this podcast, uh, the steering council, so we accepted this PEP uh, with a bunch of conditions. So it's not just blank acceptance. There's a bunch of things uh, in particular you know, we we are um, you know we are demanding that the rollout has to be gradual, and then we are going to break as little as possible, and then that we can you know potentially you know remove all the code if it turns to be uh, you know impossible to maintain or 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 people cannot adopt it or things like that. So there's a lot of caveats. Maybe we can discuss them at the end. 
But yes, this is affecting. This is something that is happening. Um, you know, it will take a lot of time. We are envisioning a multi-year plan here, so because we don't want to, you know, make the same mistakes as we did with Python two to three. Totally different scenario, of course. We are not changing the syntax or anything. Uh, but you know, we 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 learn our lesson. We want to be as careful as possible to not break everyone. Um, but yes, it, it's happening. So and and ideally, we are going to we we have uh, read the document. I mean, I, I certainly have read it because I'm in the steering council and I have accepted this document. So it's good uh, that I uh, that I know what I'm talking about. But Gukesh as well has read the document in quite a lot of detail. Right. And we are here to discuss uh, how it works, basically, or what is the idea. Let's start with uh, the first thing, which is the one of the core changes that is going to you know create more problems that the pep tries to solve, which is um, bias reference counting, which you know sounds very scary, which is proper because we are close to Halloween, so we can say bias reference counting. Uh, okay, so the idea here uh, is that you know like uh, we have this this number of reference that you know uh, would tell us how many people uh, you know are using a given object, and now we need to make this number work across multiple threads. Right. We cannot just leave the number as it is because as you know when threads are incrementing and decrementing the number without any form of locking uh, we can have races, right? And then two threads can read the same number at the same time and when they decrement it like we, we don't have uh, minus two, we have minus one or something like that, right? So, so we need some kind of locking around this number which is very slow. So the first obvious stupid idea is to add a lock, even if this is your fastest lock possible. Unfortunately, every single attempt that we have tried at this it has failed because it's too slow, too slow. The next idea that you may have is that you know modern processors have these atomic instructions. Right. So there is this idea of using atomic integers, and this is a way uh, which you don't really require a lock, at least explicit. Uh, and the CPU performs this special you know um, memory ordering, in which case uh, it ensures that uh, you know if you increase uh, from one thread and you decrease in order. This is kind of synchronized. Unfortunately, this is also very slow. Among other things, because you know when this happens, uh, the CPU needs to throw away caches and they need to synchronize across different cores and a bunch of things that make the whole thing still very slow. So the idea is using this, you know, uh, atomic uh, increments and decrements is better, but it's still not the, the the best, right? Yeah. So what bias reference counting says is the following: when you create an object, normally what will happen, or most of the time, what will happen is that the thread that creates the object is the one that is more heavily going to use. It, right, it kind of makes sense, right? Like you, you can think how this this may be true. Of course, it's not like we don't prove it. We we cannot just you can probably imagine a program that doesn't do this, but like you know, more, most of the time this is what's going to happen. And the idea is that then every object will have two reference counts. One of them will only be used for the thread that creates the object, and that is unsynchronized. That is only touched by that thread, right? So plus one minus one, it works fast and nice. And then there is the second reference count field, which uses an atomic integer, right? And obviously we can change this implementation to something more funky, but you know, for the I think the, the actual implementation and for simplification of this, it uses one of these atomic increments and decrements. And the idea is that every single other thread will modify this second field, right? So we have like a fast version for the thread and a slow version for the for the other field. And the, the whole idea is that from time to time, uh, the main thread will kind of fold this second number into the first one. So it will basically merge this, this uh, other thread's reference count into the first one. And there is some logic to find out uh, when we need to, like, you know, deallocate the object, right, based on, on these two fields. 
Um, but this way, we ensure that most of the time when we do these operations uh, with the with the main thread, uh, they remain fast because there is there is no logging. Right. Uh, so yeah, like most objects, in fact, like stay within the thread that they're being created in. Right. But even if not, and we're using the two fields, like the the thread that created the object is the owner thread. So that is the thread that actually will now decide that okay, the reference count really reached zero, so now it's safe for us to uh, deallocate the object. Right, and then the idea is that we we uh, mark basically the states of objects uh, to account for like changes that happen to them to you know make some operations faster if we don't need to do uh, heavy things. For instance, if no other thread has ever touched the second field, then we can just remove the object as we do normally on CPython. Mm -hmm. And so we have these different states, and we use like a bit of a hack. So in in the reference count, this is a big number. Uh, if you look at this number in binary, we use the uh, least two significant bits of the you know number in, in binary to mark the state of the object. And basically the object can be in four states. One of them is basically the fall, which is like, you know, the normal Python object, nothing has touched it. But as 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 soon as, as soon as like other threads start to access the object, or like you start to support certain operations, like we reference and things like that, we move these status to other ones. Like particularly right now, we have uh, three more. Uh, one of them is called weak refs that you know says that the object starts supporting weak references and other operations that are optimized, like you know. Uh, is in some uh, some list or dictionary or things like that, and uh, at that point, then it needs a bit more you know careful uh, consideration when you want to destroy this object. So when um, when you have an object in this in this fashion and then you start operating on them, it can transition to this status that we call Q, mm -hmm. and this status basically uh, it, it means that some other thread has started modifying this object, and it requires the main thread to kind of fold the number into the first one to figure out right. if it needs to be deallocated or not. And then the last state is when when the fall has happened, which we call a merge, um, because you you merge these two fields together, and then the the you know the main thread uh, or the thread that is basically uh, in charge of destroying this object, it has to do the logic to figure out if it can be destroyed right now or need to be deferred to uh, DC or something. Right, and like frustratingly, like all this is still making a reference counting too slow. So there's even more changes that we need to make uh, to actually make it not too big of a cost uh, to change this reference counting to be thread safe. Uh, one realization that we have is that there are some objects that are just accessible for the entire life cycle of the interpreter. Like once you start it, the object is going to be created and it's never going to be deallocated until you shut down the entire process. Examples of that would be false, true, none. This is already a kind of simplified and allowed uh, making it faster with PEP 683, which allows for object immortalization. So essentially, this object doesn't have to be you know, present in all the garbage collections that are happening because it's never going to be deallocated. So there are some small changes that we need to make so that it also works with uh, biased reference counting. And that is still not enough because there are objects that are not quite immortal but they're accessed super often in a Python program. So those are usually some of the objects that are globally accessible, right? Like top-level functions, you have code objects, you have modules. Those don't use immortalization, right? Because they, you know, kind of in, in theory, you can remove a module from sysmodules right. or you can replace a top-level function with another one and so on and so on. So they aren't always kept for the lifetime of the program, but usually they are kind of global state. They are very often uh, accessed. So what we do with those, we also defer 
their reference counting. So we can say that one of those two most significant bits that we treat specially in our reference counting uh, in our reference count is used to mark this object as uh, deferred reference counting. And that counting only happens during garbage collection cycles, which are way less uh, done way less often than regular reference counting, which is eager, right? It happens, you know, every time you leave uh, you leave a scope, right? Every time like an NCREF or DECREF is happening. So for different reference counts, that's not true. Uh, we will um, only try to calculate the number of the reference counts during uh, GC cycles, but that makes this operation happen way less often, making everything faster. Right. This still requires some changes on the whole GC because right now it means that, you know, what we are trying to avoid is every time you, let's say, push one of these uh, objects that are um, accessible from the global state to the Python stack. So, for instance, in a local variable somewhere or accessible from a local variable, you cannot don't do these operations, which means that when the GC uh, is trying to find these objects, we need to teach the GC also to walk the Python stack as well, at all the thread stacks to figure out also, like, okay, so these reference counts are delayed so you need to account for them to figure out that indeed you need to destroy this object because right now the GC doesn't understand how to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so you know like more more changes are pushed to the GC to ensure that Python, uh, the GC understands this new concept of uh, delay reference counting. Right and also the garbage collector now will have to be able to visit all the threads right to actually right. kind of follow the stacks everywhere so that it knows uh, what actually still stays in memory and what uh, is not. Turns out that this doesn't solve all the problems. This only solves the reference problem, uh, the reference count problem, right? So now, you know, with this method, we have a way to, you know, uh, you know, refer to objects from different threads in an efficient way or, or at least more efficient way. But you still have a lot of like synchronization problems. Like if, if you have two threads pushing elements into a list, so calling list.append, this can still race, right? So so now it turns out that we require a lot more changes to ensure that your Python application doesn't crash. And this is kind of important because like in a compiled language, uh, like you know, uh, if if you allow me to say a YOLO language like C <laughs> when you know it's up to you and it's a you know free lunch. Uh, there is no, you know, a nice borrow checker or compiler, you know, yelling at you if you don't do it correctly. Um, but you know, performance. Um, then um, the problem is that if you have, like, let's say, a container like a vector, and then you're trying to push from two different threads to that container, or maybe remove at the same time, your container can end in a really bad state because you know the access is not synchronized. So you need to protect this with a lock. <laughs> And the problem is that if you don't do it, it will crash. Yeah. Technically, it enters this realm that is called undefined behavior, where you know unicorns can appear and according to the holy standard. But in practice, it basically will crash in a weird way, and it's going to be very, very hard to debug. And in Python, we don't we don't like this. Like we don't want our programs to crash just because you're not using locks when you're appending to a list, right? Yeah. Um, maybe we can we want to show you at least a nice exception. Or in the best case, we want it to just work because right now that's the way it is. Right now, if you append to a list from two threads, um, it's working. Mm -hmm. You can still have some surprises. Like for instance, if you use list.remove with an index and then for another thread you append to it, you may remove the wrong element if these two race because you know the guild can be switched. Exactly. But you know it won't crash and it will you will not end with like the list thinking that it has 10 elements but really has nine. So when it tries to remove it, it, it just crashes. So we needed a bunch of changes. And these changes are supported by um, basically coupling a bit more 
the way C Python manage memory because uh, as you will see this this uh, uses some of these tricks by controlling uh, the memory allocator to basically add some information when we allocate objects and this is achieved moving C Python to a new memory allocator uh, called memalloc yeah exactly like if if the amount of detail so far was already high like no no we have to go deeper we have to go so deeper before we deallocate things with reference counts getting to zero or uh, with garbage collection deciding this object is no longer reachable, like we have to allocate the memory for a particular kind of object. Maybe it's a dictionary, maybe it's just some uh, particular uh, like you know integer or whatever else. So for now, Python is using uh, pymalloc, you know, some uh, wrapper on top of more low-level uh, allocators that you have on your uh, operating system. And in fact, it's pluggable, so you can have an allocator that will help you debug things and so on and so on. But the core feature of pymalloc that you know kind of uh, allows us to be relatively efficient with different sizes of objects we have and so on and so on, uh, is that it is not internally thread safe. It doesn't have to be. And the reason why is that we have the global triple lock. So we can just use that one to make sure all the allocations are still correct. So now with the kill removed, we would be back in the game of making PyMalloc thread safe and more important to still maintain its performance. And it turns out it would be actually easier to swap out PyMalloc as we understand it right now with an allocator that is internally thread safe. And MeMalloc is one such allocator. Right. I think uh, the Me in MeMalloc stands for Microsoft. This is a Microsoft project. I think so, yeah. And uh, the idea is that not only this is you know a thread safe allocator that is very fast and very efficient, um, it also happens to have a bunch of features that we need for ensuring that you know all these operations that needs synchronization, like appending to list and things like that, stay fast. And the idea here is that, for instance, memalloc allows us to have uh, basically private heaps. So the idea is that when you call right now pymalloc or even malloc, it will return you just a, a bunch of memory. So it will give you a pointer that points to a region of memory. But that can be anywhere. Like it can be the pointer can have any value. It can be in any point of memory. You have no no control over that. Uh, but the idea is that when you have these private heaps, you have these kind of like uh, like areas of memory when you can allocate some objects there, right? Um, so basically, there is functionality in memalloc to say uh, I want my pointers, for instance, for dictionaries only in this particular area, and then you can ask back memalloc, tell me, okay, allow me to you know iterate over all my pointers that are dictionaries, right? It can also be by range, right? You know that dictionaries are between this memory position and these other memory positions. So now, just by looking up the address of the object or just by asking memalloc, you can know if a pointer belongs to some region or some other, and this allows you to do some tricks with memory uh, and this is what we call segmentation because you basically you know put objects that you care about together uh, in a in a region that is uh, different from the others so you can start asking questions and like only iterate over the ones that you want and this turns out that is going to be very important for um, the changes that we require yeah so the important feature there is that now like you can use private heaps so that uh, you know okay those objects that we're looking at are garbage collected so we can actually now follow the garbage collected tracked objects without 
having to maintain a linked list as we're doing right now, which this linked list has a very confusing effect to, uh, you know, kind of casual users of Python, where uh, ironically, even reading an object will sometimes write to memory. Uh, and, you know, that is making kind of uh, cache locality worse and so on and so on. So we can now maybe solve this issue um, as well with uh, Mimaloc. But most importantly, this is simply faster and this is, um, you know, uh, well, thread safe. Right. Now that you talk about the GC, uh, this also requires some changes on the GC uh, for, you know, dealing with the whole thing. Right. Uh, as we mentioned, one of the changes that we need in the GC is that the GC needs now to be aware of the Python stack because we are using this deferred reference counting. So the GC needs to find out that the stack owns a bunch of these references that has not been done yet. Right. But it needs a bunch of other changes. Uh, one of the reasons is right now the GC kind of works because um, when the GC runs, the, it holds the global interpreter lock, so it knows that all of the other threads cannot do anything, so it knows that all the reference counts uh, are basically frozen, right. so it can reason about them. And actually the algorithm that it uses, that you can read about it in the Python dev guide, I wrote this document about how the whole GC works, but the idea is that it uses these reference counts to figure out where the cycles are. Um, but it, when the moment when you don't have the guild anymore, it means that you know you, we don't want the GC to be running at the same time someone else is modifying these reference counts because then the algorithm doesn't work. Uh, which means that we still need to stop every single thread. And this model is called stop the world GC when you basically stop the world, yes. which is basically what we're doing right now. Except that in the case when you don't have the guild, you need to explicitly say no. Like now, when the GC runs, only one thread can reason about the reference counts. And this provides also a nice synchronization moment to, you know, start to uh, solve all this small deferred stuff. Like when you say, oh, let's do this operation later because, you know, right now it's, it's too slow to do it all the time. So let's, let's, let's put it here and let's do it later. So the GC run is one of the moments when you can start, like, you know, figuring out all these things that you left uh, because because all the threads are stopped. So it's this nice Right. So to moment. be clear, like this garbage collector, this stop the world collection is going to happen only on a single thread, right? There's going to be one thread that is responsible for uh, garbage collection. Right. And uh, some, some changes uh, were are made. One of them is that right now we have this idea of generational garbage collector. We, we have different generations for the objects and, you know, yes. objects in older generations are collected less. Uh, so one of the changes that uh, this pep makes is that it reduces the number of generations to one. Um, the idea here is that um, it's basically much easier to reason about here, and like you don't need to co like collect all the single time. So it's a matter of like it's a balance of performance and um, and implementation uh, correctness. Just because the way the GC now uh, runs over all the objects is not by you know traversing the linked list, but asking me malloc for all the you know traversing the memory row, let's say. Right. And this not only you know is is, simp is is simpler to do once you have this memory allocator cooperating with you, but also is much faster. Uh, one of the reasons is because uh, when you are traversing a linked list, you are the referencing a pointer every single time you ask for the next object. And you know, like we have these caches in CPUs that make that traversing memory that is contiguous is extremely fast, and traversing a linked list is the opposite the opposite of that, right? Yes. Um, but when we have all the objects kind of like, uh, or we, at least when you are scanning like contiguous memory of the heap, 
uh, even if you don't have, uh, even if you have holes, right? You can just skip over them, but you have the entire cat lines filled, so you can just keep keep running uh, in a very efficient way over that. So exactly, right. uh, we have now one generation. And when you ask for uh, something like GC get reference or GC get objects and all of those APIs in the GC that allow you to get all the objects in the GC, we manually reconstruct the linked list for you because all these APIs kind of need to work with linked list. So mm-hmm. so there is some reconstruction needed in the middle that right now is a bit inefficient. Um, but we can optimize in the future. So the interesting thing is like all the threads need to know that, okay, now there's this stop the world operation, like there's a pause, we're doing the garbage collection. So what is the moment in which the threads actually synchronize and stop and how do we do this? So it turns out Python already has a mechanism to stop execution in the current thread because another one uh, requested the gill. That mechanism is called the eval breaker and we could just reuse it to make a global garbage collection cycle happen. Right. Actually, one of the things that we have changed in Python 3.12 is that is precisely that this change, uh, actually 3.11 I think also has a change, is that the GC only runs on this serial breaker because before uh, the, CG, the GC could run every single time you allocate an object or you deallocate objects, right. which uh, is kind of cool because you know it has a lot of opportunities to execute. But on the other hand, it's very surprising because you may be you know, in the middle of preparing your nice object, maybe it has three other things inside Mm-hmm. And um, in the middle of your preparation of the object, then the GC runs, and then it does these all the crazy things. It deallocates things around. So what can happen is that it touches the, your object mid allocation, and there is ways to prevent this, but it's really hard to you know get it right, just because you know the GC can run at any point, and the GC is very scary because you know it can uh, execute arbitrary Python code when you call the destructors of objects or the finalizers of objects. One of the changes we did, which is unrelated to this work, but you know, is, is also used by this, is that the GC only runs on the serial breaker, which is more right. predictable. And, and thanks to this, now that all the threads are stopped, right, and we we know that they're not executing any code, like since the eval breaker is like very kind of elegant as a moment to do this, uh, we can now traverse all the thread stacks, right, and through this we can actually calculate, you know, like the cycle references and do the deferred reference counts that you know um, some of or some of the very popular objects mark themselves as being and you know we can merge the ref counts from biased reference counting right like uh, so those uh, two ref count fields from the owner thread and all the other threads to combine it and actually figure out like is this object ready to um, be freed or not right one clarification as well is that when we say that it's a stop the world GC this is stop the world only um, is, is, is applied to when we are figuring it out what objects are reachable and which objects are not once we know, you know, which objects need to be destroyed, the actual destruction themselves is uh, is is not uh, is not frozen. Like all the threads can run at the same time, the destruction happens. One of the reasons here is to avoid deadlocks. Like if you think about this um, quite a lot, it turns out that you know you can have different deadlocks if threads are still you know waiting for the GC to happen, and then you hit one of these finalizers that is waiting for some operation to finish. And then basically you you are not advancing. So so this means that when you start destroying objects, you need to allow other threads to continue. Otherwise, you can have deadlocks that you right now don't have. So it's not the end of the war, and this also makes the destruction phase faster because you know the other work can continue. Meanwhile, we destroy objects, yeah. which also makes it very tricky because you know many things can go wrong in this phase. 
Uh, but that you know, it's not as low as as a huge stop the world that it waits for everything to be destroyed before continuing. Yeah, the ordering of the um, destructions is um, might be a little you know kind of non-obvious, uh, but we know that when when the objects are now like ready to be freed, um, that doesn't have to stop the entire rest of the program to uh, ex- from execution, meaning it's faster. So you know, kind of it combines this. A nice intersection of correctness, avoiding the deadlocks. If you have like Dunderdale, like you know some some particular complex uh, deallocation right. and uh, speed. Uh, so that's maybe a good segue to talk about the performance of collections and how we need to make those threads safe as well now. Right. This is actually when things start. If you think this was already very complicated, just wait until you hear about this section because this is just bananas. <laughs> um, so the idea here is that you know we we have protected reference count using these like smart ideas, but now you still have problems. Like for instance, as we mentioned, we go back to the problem when you are appending to the list at the time at the same time you remove from the list or two threads are one is removing keys from the dictionary, the other is accessing the dictionary. So what's going to happen there, right? Turns out that the solution is to just add a ton of locks to everything, and there is no other solution because when you access uh, these objects, it, you need synchronization. So you need to ensure that only one object, only one thread can access these objects, just to ensure that you know the status internal is correct, and that's it. And unfortunately, as you can imagine, adding tons of tiny locks to everything, even if the locks themselves are really fast, is really slow. And the whole like section of like how the pep uh, you know talks about this is just to avoid maybe locking like the because uh, again it's a very slow operation uh, in some cases and basically is the balance here is you trade uh, you know speed so that's what you gain by adding a huge amount of uh, you know complexity to the code uh, so that's the you know if you have heard about like the balance between speed and memory uh, wait until you hear about the balance between uh, maintain and uh, complexity and, and speed, right? That's the other. Yeah. That's the other side of the coin. So to be clear, like we're talking about the internal code of the interpreter, right? Where uh, the additional complexity that we're creating uh, is partially just necessary for correctness, but partially also necessary for kind of predictability with what people understand as Python, like as is right now. So as uh, Pablo already mentioned, there are a bunch of operations that could feasibly just return exceptions when some operation fails to be completed in a parallel way because there was some race with something else. But we uh, don't want to change how people program Python. It would be very disruptive if things that used to actually succeed like stop uh, succeeding. It is already pretty uh, kind of um, annoying to um, Python users, right? For user code to have to deal with containers changing size during iteration and whatever and whatever. So, like, if, if we had like another new class of exceptions risen uh, in this sort of situation, it would for sure be unpopular. So. In the end, we actually have to have new locks, and some of the time, like the the number of new necessary locks is pretty high. You know, like there's a very uh, popular operations in Python when you're kind of converting one container into another, like you know, having a list of sets and whatnot. So now we're going to have to lock both of those and that obviously creates opportunity for deadlocking when there's more than one lock and so on and so on. Uh, so this is uh, something that maintainers of CPython are not entirely excited about because this is a new class of complexity that we didn't have to deal with before. Right. 
There is some operations that they don't require the full locking mechanisms, which again is the lowest version of synchronization. For instance, if you are asking for how how big is a list, like the length of a list, that requires you don't require locking because that is only reading an integer that is kept by the list. So as long as you know operations that append and remove are synchronized, reading this is you just need an atomic read, so which is a bit faster, but still you know not as fast as just reading a regular integer. Um, but in in general, like you require locking even for as Gukesh mentioned several containers at the same time. So uh, basically, what the pep tries to do is to Introduce these um, like optimizations of top, leveraging the fact that we control the memory allocator to avoid locking in some of the cases. And the cases that we are going to try to avoid locking is precisely the cases that are more common in Python. For instance, accessing dictionary uh, objects, right? When you have a dictionary and then you have a key and you access the key. So basically, you get the item from the dictionary. This needs to be fast because otherwise Python is going to be very, very slow. And the same for other things like you know getting uh, elements from lists, uh, like calling next on iterators and checking if some element is in a container. All of these things happen all the time. And then there is these tricks that that the pep tries to do to avoid using the heavy lock machinery uh, to lock around these objects and do it. Avoiding locking is. Um not something that is generally possible every time, but there are algorithms that are known like for us to be able to avoid a lock in a particular well-understood case. Uh, and we have a bunch of those. Um, you know, kind of there is a lot of operations that have uh, like a very predictable happy case and complex edge cases. So now we're going to be splitting uh, implementation of those operations into this fast path that like will not employ locking. But if we uh, identify that we are reaching an edge case, we're going to go into this full correct but slow slow path. Right. Like for instance, one of the changes that this does is is based on what is called RCU, which stands for read copy update uh, semantics, which is a trick that is used by the Linux kernel. To do a scalable, um, you know, access to unsynchronized containers, uh, which is, is is a bit complicated. But the, the idea here is that, for instance, if you are accessing an element of a list, there is two main operations that you need to do. One of them is, you know, increasing the reference count of, of the whole thing, and then you need to fetch the element. And these two operations are not atomic, which means that something can happen in the middle. Uh, for instance, something can destroy the list before you, you know, uh, access the element, or something can add, add a new element to the list. So the one that you were trying to access is in a different place because someone has moved the buffer, right? Because when you add elements to a list, it may be in the same buffer, but sometimes when you, uh, you know, the list is full and it needs to reallocate, it moves the buffer somewhere else. So the pointer that you have right now is not the one that you, you, um, that you used to have. So the idea here is that there is a bunch of like if, if you listen to this, it's going to sound a bit hocus pocus. So you need to kind of sit down and, and think about it and read a lot about this. So don't just trust us uh, for what we're going to see. Um, but the idea here is that you have a, um, a really fast path that uh, basically what it does is that it does a bunch of atomic operations. So basically, it atomically loads the list buffer, for instance, and then you atomically load the element in the buffer. So basically, you get first the the you know internal array that holds the Python object in the list atomically, and then you atomically also get um, uh, the, the element inside the array. And it turns out that that is not enough because some of these operations may fail. Uh, the the in, you know in trying to increment the reference of the object can also fail. 
Um, and then there is also like some other threads can do things in the middle of these two operations because the, like even if each one is atomic, both of them are not atomic as a whole. So you need to do a bunch of checks le- uh, after that. So for instance, you need to check if one of these operations fails or like you need to check again if the item that you got is uh, you know is still there. So you you get it again and then you check that indeed the item that you got is still there. And you also need to check that the buffer is still the same buffer and not, nothing has you know appended to the list and changed the buffer. And if all of these things are true, then you don't need to lock. You just pay two atomics, uh, atomic fetches, and that's kind of nicer than you don't need to lock. But if one of these fails, then you need to go back to the slow path that you know uses the entire lock and you know ask for the whole thing. Um, this actual trick works because if you think about it enough, uh, or you pretend that you understand what I just said, uh, this is not enough uh, because you know some of the things can happen in the middle, specifically when some objects are destroyed. In particular, you may be reading for free memory, and that is still you know obviously not good because reading for free memory is is, is undefined behavior. Uh, and what happens is that this actually works just because we control the allocator, and and we we have modified mimalloc to a bunch of things that allow us for these operations to make sense in a way, right? So even if the memory may be freed, you can still read some of these values, particularly reference count uh, from memory, and those will be valid. Yeah, mimalloc uses pages that are you know blocks of the same size. So even if that is freed memory, okay, yes, that that object is no longer valid, but you at least know that the structure of the object that the bytes will still make sense that you're not going to have like uh, kind of fields that you read as say a reference count and it's suddenly like entirely different data meaning like those for example special bits that we talked about would be like insane values right so you can still kind of um, read this outdated memory right because it's no longer current but at least you know it is not entirely different information I mean it might be but only in the case where uh, you know there are no blocks allocated Within the entire page, then Mimalo can say, "Okay, like this entire page can be reused for something entirely different." Right, and this is like the whole key. Like the idea is that we we have some modifications of top of Mimalog that avoids Mimalog reusing these pages for something else. Because obviously, if you start writing to these pages uh, after the object is deallocated, you may end with a totally different thing when you read to it, and you don't want that. You mm-hmm. still want to ensure that whatever you would you read is either you know the reference count that you have or zero, right? Exactly. So, so you have like control over what can happen, and this means that we need to basically lock without an actual lock, right? This is just lock as the English word, not the, the data structure. Um, we need to lock the page and say, uh, you know, as long as we are trying to still read from this page, you cannot, Mimalloc cannot touch this. It cannot just return the page back to the system or to the allocator to reuse it for something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of nice because, you know, this trick works and then we can have this fast access, which is also working because, um, you know, we, we don't, lock random pages. We use this trick that we mentioned before of segmenting memory in different arena, uh, different heaps, as Mimalo calls them, to ensure that you know dictionaries go with dictionaries and, and you know GC objects go with GC objects and whatnot. Um, so this allows us to to efficiently be able to lock these pages for um, you know not reused by Mimalloc, but this leaves the problem that ha- when we unlock these pages, right? Because you know, okay, so you say don't touch this page because we need to read it still, but at some point we need to say, okay, this page can again be used because otherwise you need to lock an entire page of Mimalloc every single time you you do these operations, which you know may have a huge impact on memory, and we don't want that. And by the way, one clarification here, when we talk about Mimalloc pages, this is not the, the operative system pages, right? So this is not 4K you know, regions of space, it's just an internal 
Mima lock structure that can you know have different sizes and whatnot. So it's not like for when, when we say pages, you don't think of the, about this. 4K regions. Do you think about like some internal data structure that Mimala has? Yeah, it's a it's, it's like a subset of one of those heaps that we were talking about, like inside uh, inside Mimala. So like you know heap um, the, the the heap in general is not accessible with the regular malloc. Like you know you can kind of not decide where you want the memory code to come from. You're just getting a pointer back. Uh, with Mimala, we have heap segmentation, so we can actually decide like you know kind of oh this is a, a object that is garbage collected. So it should live somewhere else than other objects, so that we can be faster at you know kind of actually following uh, all this garbage collection information when we're doing the uh, stop the world collection. Uh, so how many heaps do we actually have now? So I think we have mainly three heaps plus some specific like um, internal ones. But the main three heaps are uh, like all the objects that don't participate in DC go into its own like you know bucket. Uh, of memory. Yep. Then we have two uh, heaps for the GC objects, and this is just because um, there, there there is this concept of manage dicts. Um, the idea here is that if you have a normal Python class, uh, Python knows how to manage manage the internal dictionary, uh, and we actually have these optimizations that Mark Shannon did uh, in, uh, with uh, in Adasan. Um, that basically don't create the dictionary if it's not needed, and this is quite cool because, like most of the time, when you are accessing an object, uh, you know, having to use a dictionary access and hash the thing and all of these things is quite slow, and it uses more memory uh, because you know most of the time you are not looking at the actual dictionary of the class, uh, which is normally accessible uh, in you know object under dict. Um, so, so we have these operations internally that speed up access, but um, you know C extensions uh, can still um, you know use uh, like internal layouts of the classes and you know use the fact that there is a dictionary there and access the dictionary as a dictionary, and also users can also do like dot dunder dict, in which case we need to create the dictionary for them if it's not there, and C extension can still use a dictionary normally. So for those C extensions and uh, other cases, uh, Python uses this idea of manage dicts, which basically Basically, says, okay, so I'm not managing the dictionary internally, so I cannot do all these fancy tricks. Um, you do it. And for those, uh, it turns out that, you know, for internal details about how these DC objects work and, you know, what we can and cannot do, they go into their own heap. So basically, we have three heaps non GC, GC with managed dicks, uh, GC without managed dicks. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the main segmentation that we right. have. Right. Yeah. So, like, potentially, if you have this change to Mimalog where uh, we still want to look at reference counts of objects even though they're already deallocated uh, and that keeps the entire page potentially still in memory. Like In a very unlucky scenario, you can have a lot of those pages alive, meaning the memory use uh, of Python is going to be way higher than it should have been. right? So like, we have to have some way to alleviate with that problem so that we don't have to wait until the next garbage collection cycle uh, to reclaim this memory. Otherwise, we could just be killed by our hypervisor like when the uh, container is suddenly, you know, like requesting too much memory or within the Linux you would have like you know this um killer kill your process before you have a chance to actually clean up after yourself uh, so what do we do to actually make this less of an issue right this is when the whole thing starts becoming even more complicated so the, the idea to basically get rid of these pages that are locked and just to make you know uh, the container access uh, and synchronize well not synchronized but without locks a bit faster um, it uses an approach that is used by the FreeBSD operative system called uh, Global Unbounded Sequences. Uh, 
Um, we we actually we were like looking at this and explaining this thing in a podcast is probably like too complicated. I will yeah. give you an idea of how it works. But this uses the word counter four times in different ways. So you know, it's, it's just the third time I'm going to say counter, your head is going to explode. Um, like minded. So, but the idea here is that um, to ensure that you know we know when these pages need to be uh, can be reclaimed and reused again uh, because we are not locking them. Um, basically, there is like a, a like a bunch of counters uh, which acts as like generations. And basically, there is like a write counter and a read counter. And every thread basically keeps track of the last counter it has seen. And every time we lock one of these pages uh, in these faster atomic, uh, you know, operations. Uh, well, not atomic operations, but the container operations. Um, we mark that page with one of these counters, and then there is some logic that every thread uses to look at the counter in the page and the counter that it has seen. And it, there is some conditions when it knows that it's safe to actually, uh, you know, unlock the page because it knows that on those conditions, nobody actually, you know, is going to read at that page and it can be actually reused, right? Like the the condition can actually be checked just by comparing these numbers, but you also need the logic to keep these numbers up to date and you know increase the global counter and whatnot. Well, like if the Gale is being controversial for a group of Python core devs, one group that was especially worried was the faster CPython team because the specialized interpreter that they were working on uh, relied on the global interpreter lock to make sure that the specializations as they are happening were still uh, produced in the right moment and nobody else could actually come in you know, in the middle of the specialization and break everything. So now there's some changes in the specialized interpreter that are required to live in a world where uh, there is no gil anymore. So, for example, like we have a specializations, uh, and they can only actually happen for a piece of bytecode once. But more importantly, we have a, a mutex now that uh, when the specializations would be happening, uh, but the mutex is actually held, like we avoid multiple threads writing to the inline cache at the same time. This is obviously something that has impact on uh, specialization performance because that mutex didn't exist before. But the locking does ensure we have this um, consistently cached, right? So like the two tags that we keep, like they're uh, consistent with one another. Uh, so yeah, this is essentially making the work of the faster Python team more complicated uh, to still achieve specialization, but to make sure that um, you can run multiple threads now actually in parallel. Right, and and this is actually an interesting aspect of this because this was adapted to 3.12 because when Sam did the first version, there was not an adaptive interpreter. So the first version of this work didn't have to deal with this particular version. And now you know the pep was modified after this to to account for this. So so this is an area that you know we can improve over time, and we don't need to be as aggressive and as you know um, like cautious regarding these optimizations. Also, as said by the faster C Python team, uh, this is a new realm, right? Because like normally, what you get uh, in the literature is that you get all these like you know papers and strategies when you have some form of locking. Uh, or you have free threading, but like having an adaptive interpreter in the presence of free threading is kind of a new thing, or at least there is not as much you know research into that, which means that there is less uh, known approaches that you can do in this case. So, so the whole thing becomes a bit more complicated because now you're dealing with two very complicated aspects, and it becomes even more complicated if you have a, a just-in-time compiler in the mix because you know the just-in-time compiler can need to generate this native code and it needs to do this thing. In a 
kind of synchronized way. So two threads don't generate different kind of code just because one thread is using one function for floats and the other thread is using the same function for integers. So th those those kind of uh, you know optimization need to happen in some coordinated way, which makes the whole thing a bit more difficult because now you know both approaches need to know about each other, which means that you know it's, it's going to be very important moving forward that uh, everyone talks to everyone in the core team, right? Because you know you cannot just do the no gil stuff in one way and you know try to optimize Python to make it faster in the other way. Now now both you know everyone needs to talk about to talk with everyone just to ensure that you know we we keep uh, ourselves synchronized. So so you know we we uh, don't race with each other uh, when the changes that we do to see Python. Right, and this brings us back to the terms of acceptance of PEP 703. Obviously, there are still many details about how NoGill works. We could talk about how the CAPI has this concept of borrowed references and how they're actually making everything way harder to uh, reason about with the presence of free threading. We could talk about the method resolution order that is used to figure out which particular method version in a class that has an inheritance hierarchy should be used and how that needs to be sped up uh, with the presence of free threading while still maintaining correctness. So there's many other details that are interesting, but we reached the hour on the episode right now. Aww. So maybe, yeah, like maybe let's actually go more high level once more and just uh, talk about like what the acceptance of the PEP 703 really means, right? Because of what I think actually helped the steering council make the decision to accept this uh, change to be made was this reframing of the problem from let's remove the gill, let's just go and you know like make this huge change into let's make it possible for users to build a version of Python that does not include the gill. That way, we can allow the users to experiment with the resulting um, interpreter, produce free threading versions of uh, NumPy, SciPy, and so on and so on, so that you can actually see whether this helps with scalability, whether this helps or hurts performance in the real world. And more importantly, does it introduce this new scary um, class of free threading errors that like you know, so far we didn't really have uh, in Python? Well, we did have them to some extent, but since threading was so crippled, it was relatively uh, little used, right? So now there's a um, a whole new world. Everybody wants to have answers to those questions, like you know, is this going to be awesome or terrible? And we cannot really, you know, use any clairvoyance here. We really just need to test this. So what PEP seven hundred three says is, let's allow the configure script to have an option where we're building without the global interpreter lock, but that is not entirely compatible with the version of Python that was uh, built with uh, the Gill. Or actually, now we're going to have to think about the changes made for NoGill all the time, even with, if we're using the version with the global interpreter lock. So what's going to happen to the C API? Yeah, that's actually something that, that is very important to remark here, because a lot of people think like, oh, you know, the CPython TV is removing the guild, so it's going to be free launch. And actually, due to these things that Gukesh is mentioning, um, like this is going to be challenging for a lot of people. Uh, this means that you know maybe if you have pure Python code, you don't need to think that much about it, especially if you know you you have proper synchronization already in the presence of Python threads. 
Uh, but I see extensions will need to think a lot about this because as Gukesh mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, right now see extensions can be really happy because they know that you know only one thread can manage their objects at the same time. But this is not true anymore, which means that now you need locking almost everywhere or some other strategy, or at least you need to think about it. And the problem is that thinking about these uh, multi-threaded problems is not is not too easy because even if there are some tools like you know threads on a share and hill grind and things like that. There is nothing that will tell you, you know, you have a problem here and you need to put a lock here, unfortunately, right? And even less in the presence of all these tricks that we are doing. So this means that, you know, one of the reasons we are doing this thing very slowly is for understanding how challenging it is for C extensions to be compatible with Nogil and try to see if this is actually something that the community wants to pay because the community will pay something, right? For instance, as Gukas was asking, like what's happening with the C API? Well, we mean this means that Nogil needs an entire different C API. Maybe it's not a huge area of like functions that are changing, you know, parameters and names and things like that. But they need that some APIs that we offer are not valid anymore with Nogil. And on, on turn, you need to change the semantic of some other APIs. For instance, the APIs that acquire the Gil and release the Gil. Obviously, they're not valid anymore if there is no Gil. And so they need to do something slightly different. Um, also, like you know, all these borrow and reference need to go, which means that you know the, 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 there is a bunch of things that will change. And this means that you know the, the community needs to pay this price in many ways. One of the ways is that now if you provide like you know wheels, uh, these are pre-compiled versions of your packages for C extensions like NumPy or SciPy or things like that, you need to provide one wheel also uh, for the NeoGuild version, which means that you need to build twice as many versions of Python, assuming that all the versions can be NeoGuild and Gil, but also you need to test them. So you need to test with Gil and with NeoGuild and build like these two things, which means that the CI will take twice as, ma- as much time unless you do it everything in parallel, uh, but that's, like for sure you will consume twice as many resources, uh, assuming that you have like both versions, right? Obviously, D13 is the uh, first version that may have this, and assuming that you want to opt in because this is not going to be the default for a long time, you know you can defer doing this um, in in the future. But if you want to try, uh, it's a it's, it's a bunch of work that you need to opt in. And in the steering council, we have also discussed, and it's in the acceptance notice. So we wrote this super long text that I invite you to read in the Discord uh, discourse uh, Python. Um, web page uh, when we basically list all the conditions that we require for you know going forward with this change and one of the things that we mentioned is precisely this idea of having two C APIs and how we may not want to have this thing when we move phases so you know people don't need to build two versions of the same thing and we only have one so this is a tricky thing because obviously this means that uh, when we merge both C APIs let's say into the same one it means that um, you know, all wheels won't work for the new thing because it's a new entire, like, you know, b- um, binary tag and whatnot. Um, but it means that, you know, moving forward, people won't need to create these two different things for everything, right? So there is a lot of aspects that are very complicated, um, and especially regarding the C API. So there is changes that are required, there is semantic changes that you need to do, there is a lot of thinking that you need to do if you want to ensure that your C extension works with um, no guild. Sometimes it's going to be very easy. Uh, other times, especially if your C uh, library is very big, it's going to be very challenging. Um, and um, you know maybe doing uh, this in languages that are a bit more careful with threaded like Rust maybe a bit easier. Uh, but a, a lot of time you still need to do a lot of work because normally all these interactions with this API happen in unsafe code in Rust, so, so you still can have like weird things happening there that the borrow checker is not going to protect you against. 
Um, so, so, and then you have all these bags that Gukas was mentioning uh, on top of that, right? Because if you, you, when you're doing these changes, you do them incorrectly, you may uh, run into deadlocks, you may run into uh, live locks, you may run into crashes, um, and which are also very hard to debug because, you know, when you are doing this deferred reference counting, it means that when the bug uh, is seen, it already happened long ago. It's just when, you know, when when the thread merges the reference counting, now it's bad. So so you need to use this super advanced debugger like RR, the reverse debugger, just to understand what happened uh, going backwards. So, so, you know, it's going to be an interesting time. Uh, I don't want to scare people, you know, we are close to Halloween, as we said before. This doesn't mean that it's impossible. It's just that you know you need. We need to take this thing as a community in mind because uh, many people are looking at the change and it's like, oh, nice, we finally have it. Well, yes, and all this pain as well. Right? You know, it comes in the same package. Yeah. Uh, so um, it's, it's important. It's to uh, it's definitely a radical change. Uh, one kind of um, reason why it was the, a good time for this, or maybe. If it wasn't the best time, it was the only time was that we did have some grosses um, like no guild branch that was a proof of concept of this actually being successfully implemented and performant enough for us to consider. Uh, and we might not get there in the future again, right? If we don't uh, attempt removing the guild right now with the heavy changes that are made for the specialized interpreter, for the just-in-time compiler, and so on and so on. Um, this kind of experiment with removing the goal interpreter lock becomes harder and harder to execute. So having this branch that uh, already shows us, okay, this is feasible, this is already done, is something that we really need to kind of take into account since we cannot just leave the branch there for a year or two, it would become stale, it would become unusable for us. Uh, hence, even though there is so much change in terms of performance uh, on the Microsoft Steam uh, end, we actually didn't have much other choice than to um, like start the Nogil uh, experiment at the very same time. That requires a lot of coordination, this will require a lot of work, uh, but you know, the, there is plenty of opportunity for this to be the most kind of radical improvement in the quality of the interpreter that we've seen in decades. So uh, there is plenty of opportunity for Python to reclaim its position in this orchestrating language where uh, it stops being the bottleneck for uh, like not even executing its own uh, kind of pure Python code, but for executing other code on CPUs and e increasingly on a GPU where they can be fast enough that even orchestration from Python now is affecting what you can do uh, compared to running it without the interpreter. So yeah, like hopefully we're going to be uh, feasible and we're going to be still kind of considered um, like, you know, kind of um, modern technology into the future. If we build 313 uh, with no gil and the users uh, find that, okay, like maybe there's issues, but they're worth it because the compromise of allowing scalability is uh, converting this uh, language into something much more powerful. Right. Uh, maybe something that we can do in the future is to actually bring some growth himself here to just tell us everything that we said that is incorrect. <laughs> so you know every every mistake that we have made, uh, just reach to us if if you if this is something that you would like to 
here uh, in the podcast. Right. Uh, or if we did go a little too deep, uh, or maybe not enough, like just let us know what we can improve, uh, such that the level of uh, the detail like is what you're expecting in the future. Uh, yeah, this was a very exciting uh, episode to do because like the PEP was just accepted uh, officially. So now the real work can begin with uh, the continuous integration, you know, actually building Nogil on our end with new build bots, with the entire team uh, actually having to now read up on uh, PEP 703 and how to make their change thread safe for, uh, from now on. Uh, there's uh, still a lot of unknowns uh, even on our end, like what is the extent to which we're going to have to adopt the stand library? A lot of which being just pure Python, but a lot of it is marked explicitly as not thread safe. What are we going to do with that? Are we going to adopt all the AsyncIO APIs that don't uh, claim thread safety, or are we going to leave them and make the users mm, worry about that, and so on and so on? So there are uh, still like a lot of, of problems, yeah, a lot of, of challenges. Yeah. Like let's call them challenges, not problems. Wow, talking like a manager. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> so this is everything that we have for you, at least in uh, our and something like 10 minutes that we, we are already. Um, so we hope that you enjoy it and we hope to see you in the next episode. Yeah, see you.